0: All right, guys. Well, we've we've arrived at last our last lesson on last things, the events surrounding Jesus' return. We've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, I'll just kind of rehearse this. Lesson one, the return of Christ. When and how. Lesson two, the Olivet Discourse. Looking at Luke 21, Mark 13, Mark 24. Lessons three and four kind of defining some terms with rapture, tribulation, looking at First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Lesson 5, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, the men of lawlessness, looking at Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. Lesson 6 was the pattern of God's saving plan for all people, looking at Romans 11. Lessons 7 and 8, looking at the millennium, Revelation 20. Lesson 9, the resurrection, First Corinthians 15. And now the final judgment. Oh, no, sorry, that was last week. The final judgment and eternal punishment. And then today, lesson 11, The New Heavens and New Earth, looking at Revelation 21 and 22. So let's actually just read through those two chapters, not the whole thing. We're just going to look at Revelation 21, 1 to 14, and then 21, 22 to 22, 5. So a big chunk, but not everything. In in highly metaphorical language and apocalyptic imagery, uh, this passage focuses on the end of history and the dawning of the New Heaven and the New Earth. This is these, the last two chapters in the Bible. This is the, this is the summation of the whole Bible plotline, storyline. So verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full, the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Then verse 22 of chapter 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Well, if you look at, your, uh, at the PDF in the announcement email or what you have in the back hand out there, um, you can see where I'm going with this. I'm following the last chapter in Don Carson's book, The God Who Is There. So the setup of this is what is, in, jo- in John's vision here, what is new? What's symbol-laden? What's missing? What's central? So we're going to look first at what is new in Reve- in this vision. Revelation 21, 1-8. And what John sees initially, of course, is a new A new heaven and a new earth. That's verse 1. What does that call to mind? When you hear hear heaven and earth, what does that bring to mind, biblically speaking? A text. It's not a rhetorical question. (laughs) It sounds like the first verse of the Bible, doesn't it? Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, right? The opening words, God created the heavens and the earth. So the opening of the Bible is actually connecting now with the very close of the Bible. Uh, but there's a difference here. This is a new heaven. It's a new earth and it's untainted with any kind of sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's a new heaven, a new earth. What John sees then here, obviously, is a complete transformation of existence. A complete transformation of existence. The apostle adds, and there was no longer any sea. Ah. Oh. too bad, huh? I guess that means in eternity there's no more holidays on the coast, right? That's what it's saying? God isn't like sand and sea and (laughs) not for all eternity. What's he he saying here? For Israelites, the sea is actually associated with chaos. Uh, The Israelites were not a seagoing people. Uh, They were kind of a nation of landlubbers. And uh, the one time that under Solomon, they actually tried to build a navy, the ships had to be manned by people from seagoing pagan nations up north. Um, So as a result, Israelite poetry is full of negative sea imagery. Kind of like maybe our poetry is full of negativity when it comes to the wasteland of a desert or something. It's like it's never good, the desert, in a sense. But for them, the sea is always dangerous. It's negative. There's chaos. Which means John isn't talking about what the sea is like, her water properties, the new heavens, the new earth. That's not. Here's the new reality of what... Eternity will be like there's no water at all. He's not saying that. He's saying in the new heavens, new earth, there's no more chaos. There's no more destruction. There's no more wickedness. There's no more fallenness. It's all gone. And the expression, a new heaven and a new earth, that's a biblical expression. It goes back, actually, to Isaiah 65. Um, We looked at that during our millennial topics here. But uh, Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create new heavens. And a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. It also appears in 2 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I just ask, are, are you are you looking forward to that? That new heaven, new earth where righteousness dwells. Do you think about that? Pray about that. Pray, come, Lord Jesus, in Maranatha. The Apostle Paul, too, he writes about this present world order. It, it's groaning like a woman in pregnancy waiting for the final transformation of God's people when the whole universe is going to be transformed. What text is that? Yes. Romans 8. Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the creation waits in eager expectations for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So that's how John begins his vision in Revelation 21.1. But almost immediately, though, having seen this new heaven, this new earth, there's no sea, there's no wickedness, um, it changes. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. However, this is very important. We're not to think at this moment that this... uh, We're not to think of a new creation, right? New heavens, new earth, new creation into which the new Jerusalem comes, and now there's kind of a melding together of these two images. That's not the point. The new Jerusalem is the new heaven and new earth. It's another way of describing the same thing. John just simply changes the metaphor. The point is that the ultimate eternal state can be thought of as... Uh, a new heaven, new earth, it's a new creation, or it can be thought of as a new city, the new Jerusalem. And that change enables us to glimpse different facets, then, of the same reality. Um, and, of course, this vision of the new Jerusalem, that brings to mind the old Jerusalem, right? That's his purpose, the, the city of the great king, the city of the temple, the city where God manifested himself to his people. That's what it's—that's it should be bringing to mind. But what John sees now in his vision is a new Jerusalem. So that means there's no, there's no sin, there's no corruption, which makes this also uh, a very, very social vision. This is important. This is something I think that sort of maybe escapes our thinking as Christians when we're thinking of the world to come. Um, it's essential we understand this. Many of us think, in the West at least, of spirituality in very highly individualistic terms. We think of our Christian walk in highly individualistic Me and Jesus You know, and the the church kind of gets shunted off to the side. Um, But here we have the people of God living in a social context for all of eternity. We're living in a city. That brings certain things to mind. That means eternity will, (laughs) you know, it's supposed to kind of give us a different sort of aspect on on eternity. Uh, We're going to be not going to be playing a harp, right, on a solitary cloud (laughs) in heaven in the afterlife. The biblical vision of eternity, one of its visions, is of a city. And there's all kinds of implications, I think, with that. But then he changes the symbolism again. He sees the New Jerusalem, verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now the city is a bride. So it's just like, it's changed three times. <laughs> he, so why, why is he calling this, this new heavens, new earth, this city, a bride, beautifully dressed? Um, in the Old Testament, again and again, God presents himself as a kind of bridegroom to his people Israel. And that image is extended to the New Testament when with Jesus now, Jesus now is the bridegroom and the church is his bride with the two of them engaged engaged until, until when? It's the great consummating marriage supper. It's a powerful way of saying the joy and the intimacy and the pleasure, the knitting together of soul and mind and heart and body, which we know best in a, in a well-ordered marriage is only an indication, it's a mere hint of the kind of intimacy and joy that we'll experience when the church is united with Jesus forever, and because Jesus is also said to be in another metaphor a sacrificial lamb, the final wedding banquet can be called the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19:9. 9. And even here in chapter 21, this city is later referred to as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 9: One of the angels. just skip ahead for a second. One of the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, "Come." I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me. So he said, I'm going to show you the bride. And he said, like, here's the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from, out of heaven from God. See, like, no, no embarrassment, no problem at all. Just mixing those metaphors completely. So verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. This notion of, of God dwelling with his people, um, that, that comes up over and over in the Old Testament. It's one of those major threads that ties the whole Bible together. You see that kind of language at different spots along the way of salvation history in the Bible. When you're looking at things like priesthood, sacrifice, sonship, all, it, one of the things is dwelling and I will be their God, they will be my people. Look for that phrase in your Bible reading and where it pops up along the road of salvation history. It means different things at different moments. Um, in Leviticus 26, when the tabernacle is being put together in the desert by the ancient Israelites, long before they have an established temple, right, The so tabernacle first, then the temple, God says, Leviticus 26, 11 to 12, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So God's dwelling place there is associated with the tabernacle, right? And then later on, the temple that Solomon builds. But, but that the Israelites will be God's people is actually bound up then with the tabernacle, with all of its rituals. And then centuries later, centuries, six centuries later, in the days of Jeremiah, um, or sorry, that's six inches before Jesus, rather, when God promises that there will be a new covenant, he says this. Remember Jeremiah 31, 33? I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And you go, oh, that's that same language again. He's supposed to kind of, you know, trigger something. The language is similar, yes, but if under the old covenant, it's bound up with God's self-disclosure in the tabernacle, which it was first in Leviticus, Right? It's the same language, but then then in the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, it's bound up with God's self-disclosure in the minds and hearts of his people. It's the same language, but the entire notion is being ratcheted up. That's how typology works in the Bible. It gets ratcheted up, these themes. So did you see a progression? It's important you see that progression. And now, in Revelation 21, in the last stage, the second last chapter of the Bible, the same language, I will be their God, they will be my people, it's ratcheted up to such a place that the intimacy is so great, and God is so much present with his people that it's unthinkable that any any little bit of sin or decay or judgment, loss, death, any of that stuff could prevail in this new reality that God has created. The ratcheting up of expectations is so intense that perfection itself is envisioned. It's perfection. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. But you're making a connection, right? Like Leviticus with the tabernacle, it was like, here's this localized thing with the 12 tribes of Israel, but now it's the whole new heavens and new earth, right? God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And Don Carson notes here that eternal blessedness in this text is actually couched in negation. So no tears, no pain, no mourning, no death, nothing bad. It's all couched in the terms of negation. God will bring perfect comfort and remove the source of sorrow, the curse, and the brokenness of the old order of sin. There is no curse any longer. But that's only the negative side of the glory to come. I mean, that's great or not, but it's all negative. The positive side is depicted in the imagery that follows. To be be with God. To be with God in glory and splendor. To see the limitless perfections that all of eternity still won't exhaust because he is our God, and we, his people, we dwell with him, and he with us forever. That's the positive side of this vision. And it's almost like it's so amazing <laughs> that it's almost like if our faith needs to be reassured, John then adds in verses 5 to 8, he who is seated on the throne. And if you have read red our Bible, that's probably in red, these next things coming up. I would disagree with that. This is God on the throne talking. There's always a distinction between the one on the throne, God, and the Lamb, right? This is, in my, for my two cents, this is God, not Jesus talking. I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. So he's saying from creation to the consummation to the new creation, from creation in its perfection with its, its horrible slide into to decay, and the sin and rebellion, to the work that I've done in sending my son, Jesus Christ, and the pouring out of the Spirit, and now the consummation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the turning point of all of this is my son, Jesus, and what I've accomplished through his death and resurrection on the cross. That's what's going on in the background of this. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of eternal life. Those who are victorious, verse 7, and, and to be victorious in the book of Revelation, means that you persevere in faithfulness by God's grace to the very end. You're victorious. It's not because you're breaking in cash or you're very successful. You persevere to the end. To those who are victorious, I will inherit, will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So what's new in John's vision here? We have the new heaven, the new earth, new Jerusalem, and the consummated union, the consummated union between Christ and his people. Any questions about that first part? Okay. Then what's symbol-laden? Revelation 21, 9 to 21. A lot of what we've already just read, I mean, that's deeply, deeply symbol-laden. It's not that now the symbols start. But in these next verses, those symbols, they pile up so quickly, so fast, that you can kind of feel almost swamped by the imagery. We're not going to work through all of it. This is too much. We'll just consider a few of these symbols, okay? So we're told in verse 11, we're told that the city John sees shines with the glory of God. That is, the people, this city coming out of heaven, shines with the glory of God. That is a beautiful reality to anticipate. Beautiful. Uh, Because even the very best churches on this planet, churches that are full of the gospel, where there's discipline, there's accountability, membership, all that kind of stuff, where Christians really do love each other, we're still simply flawed. It's not perfection. Every local church on the planet is made up of sinners, like you and me. Sinners who have been, yes, declared just by God. Uh, we're in right legal standing with him. But sinners still, we're not, we're not perfected yet, and not even close to what we will be on this last day. But one day, the city itself, the people of God, the bride, right, will glow with the presence of God No trace of sin anywhere. The language is drawn from the Old Testament prophets. The prophets who anticipated that Jerusalem, that the Jerusalem that would be built after the exile, looking forward to the ultimate Jerusalem. So think of Isaiah 60, 1 to 2. This is addressed to Zion, to Jerusalem. Arise, shine for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. That's Isaiah sixty one and two. And notice the strange dimensions of this city. Verse fifteen: The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. That means it's a cube. He measured its walls and it was 144 cubits thick by human measurement with the with which the angel was using. And if you're if you should ever read a translation where they kind of change that into modern day measurements in the text itself, it misses the whole point. The the math behind it is, it's supposed to be 12,144, that's right. The significance of the 12,144 apocalyptic literature is the genre of this book. It loves symbolism. And this is calling to mind the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 12 multiplied by 12 equals 144. It's a way of saying that all of the old covenant people and all of the new covenant people together constitute this unified people, uh, kind of like the one new humanity in Jesus Christ in Ephesians 2.15. But this city is built like a cube. Why? I grew up in a family where, okay, there's the literal dimensions. That's how big heaven is. (laughs) It's like, no, no, no. Once again, this is deeply symbol-laden. Stop and ask yourself, where do you find a cube in the Old Testament? And there's only one place. It's the most holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And it's paved over the whole thing with gold. The tabernacle was built three times as long as it was wide. Two-thirds of it took up the first part, the holy place, and the last third, perfectly cube-like, was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was found, including the top on which the blood of the bull and goat was sprinkled in the presence of God on the Day of Atonement. This was God's throne room on planet Earth, in that back room of that tent, and later on uh, in that temple. It was a place where God manifested himself in his glory when that blood was poured out. And here we're told that the entire New Jerusalem, the new city, the whole city, the new heaven and new earth is built like a cube. The New Jerusalem is, think of it this way, it's like it's a massive Holy of Holies. That's, that's the imagery that's being displayed here, which is to say the entire creation has become the dwelling place of God. That intimacy of going into that back room of the Holy of Holies is now over all of creation loved ones, all of us will forever be in the very presence of God if we're in Christ. We no longer need a mediating priest. We no longer need blood sacrifices. It's equivalent to when Jesus was crucified. Remember, the veil of the temple was torn in two and the way into the most holy place, the presence of God was opened. It's a glorious vision. It's glorious. Any questions about that? So the sea in in Israel, in their understanding, is always a a place of chaos, mud churning up. It's like it's not a nice thing. They're they're a nation of landlubbers, kind of how we think of the desert. Desert's always kind of nasty for us, you know? For them, it's the sea. And so it's a way of saying there's no wickedness, there's no chaos, there's no sin. It's a metaphor, yeah. It's not saying there's no beach holidays or anything like that, you know? What's missing? Revelation 21, 22 to 27. John tells us he did not what he did not see in the city, what was missing, and these are all very important. He doesn't see a temple. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple in the city because the whole city is built like a cube. We're already in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. We can't imagine the temple then being in the Holy of Holies. That imagery doesn't work. Or to change the language just a bit, God himself, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple. The focal point, the heart of the universe, the heart of the temple, and that is where his people are. So we no longer need mediating priests or mediating temples that have served us across the centuries to prepare us for the coming of Jesus because Jesus has come. There's no need, right? Uh, There's no sun and moon, he says, as well. Again, it's not that there's going to be no nighttime either and that. We'll get to that in a bit. We're in the sense of, you know, he's not giving us a picture of, of the cosmology of the new heavens and new earth in that sense. Yeah, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no sea, there's no water, I guess. There's no nighttime, there's no daytime. He's not saying that. That defeats the purpose. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God it gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. See, it's always, it's always god and the lamb the one on the throne and the lamb you know so as usual this is heavily symbol laden. in the ancient world in a culture where there's no electric light the night hours brought great darkness especially if there was no moon i mean we all live in toronto you guys i'm from the country so it's like (laughs) you see some real country dark out in the country where it is dark if there's no moon there's clouds it's like you can't see your hand in front of your face um it was customary to shut the city gates. It's going to enhance security for that, too. Nighttime is bound up with danger and wickedness. In such a culture, the sun and the moon not only give structured time by giving us these normal cycles of life, but they also they signal relative safety. Now we're told, in verses 23 to 25, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. That means, again, no danger, right? No curse, no sin, no rebellion. Everything's perfect. No impurity, number three. There will be no impurity. Verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those names are written in the Bland's book of life <clears throat> have you ever tried to imagine what it would be like not only to be to be immaculately immaculately perfectly pure but also to live in a culture that is immaculately perfectly pure You're, you yourself are pure and the whole culture is perfectly pure it's inconceivable. I can't, I can't even begin to imagine that. Uh, what would it be like, Carson asks, this, what would it be like never to have lied about anybody or anything? What would it be like to always have loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself? 24-7. And only not, just not you, but everybody in the society around you. This is Normal. In God's mind, it's the way it was in the beginning, Genesis one and two. It got lost in Genesis three. Now it's restored in Genesis in Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Right? It's the way it will. It's going to be at the end, with resurrection existence and no possibility of falling again. No impurity will ever be allowed to enter the New Jerusalem. No greed, no hate, no betrayal, no jealousy, and above all, no idolatry all who enter will be completely and utterly and totally and joyfully God-centered. Because that's the way it should be. Finding all of our supreme joy and contentment in this God who discloses himself forever and perfectly, inexhaustibly, before his own blood-bought people means that all of the culture of the new heaven and new earth will just be suffused throughout with Shalom. With peace, right? With well being, the flourishing, the social peace. A shalom whose measureless source is the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Questions about that? Going into preaching sermon mode here, lecture mode. What is central? Revelation 22, 1 to 5. This now is the culmination of the vision. Here we see what's central. There are two things that are emphasized. Number one, the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The language, once again, comes from Genesis. And by the way, I I keep recommending this book. It's it's a beast of a book. But just even to have it as a reference on your shelf, it's called, it's by G.K. Beale, The the Temple and the Church's Mission, I think it's called. Something like that. Um, Buy that book and seeing the imagery that's linked up with genesis one and two and then these closing chapters he does a fantastic this is genesis through and through and through with all these jewels and everything else it's all genesis the temple and the church's mission something pretty close to that. Is it's edited by carson it's in that silver series of biblical theology that he has that's the best book in that series that i've read so far but it's a beast of a book Um, Verse 22, 1-3 to three, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Just think that one verse, right there. can't even conceive of it. <laughs> the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. The throne of God and the Lamb goes back to the great vision of Revelation 4 and 5. This Lamb, Christ Jesus Himself, is the one who emerges from the throne and who brings all of God's purposes to pass because He is that Lion King. Remember, like who's going to who's going to cut? Who's worthy of cutting these seals? And remember that that part of that. And He says, "What are you saying here? Here's all of God's sovereign purposes for 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 salvation and for judgment." Who's worthy of actually bringing all of this to pass? And he looks around and he can find nobody who's worthy of doing it. But then he does see somebody as this slaughtered lamb. You know, but also a lion. You know, it's Jesus Christ. He can do. He can enact God's sovereign purposes in this. The throne is a shared throne, as it were. The throne of God and of the lamb. And all that we need for eternal life comes from his reign. The water of life comes from his throne, utterly dependent upon him with a pure supply. The 12 months bring forth 12 fruits. The 12, reminding us once again, of the 12 tribes and of the 12 apostles. So all the people of God. And there is such a transformation that there is healing of the nations. So that's the first thing. Number two is the vision of God. Four to five. But the most spectacular part of the whole vision is found in these verses. It's sometimes called the beatific vision, the blessed vision. It's the vision of God. Um, this is this is a just as good as it can possibly get. Verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. They will see his face. So do you remember in Exodus chapter 32, 34, where Moses asked to see more of God's glory. He wanted to see God's face. And God replied in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The closest that we can get to seeing God before this consummation is where? Rest. That's a good Sunday school answer. In Jesus Christ, right? Yep. (laughs) But now, in Revelation 22, we've, we've been so transformed, right, that our sinfulness, as it were, has been burned away. The last stages of the old nature and its sinful desires, they're all gone. Now, in God's grace, we have the privilege of gazing at God and all of his transcendent holiness. It doesn't have to like hide us in kind the cleft of oh, rock and you know, put his hand there and we see the trailing edge of the afterglow of his glory. Actually, we're looking at him face to face in all of his transcendent holiness. But love, the wonder of the new heaven and new earth is not, first and foremost, that we get to see our dead mothers or something who've gone on ahead of us, right? There's gonna be a joyful reunion of the saints, I'm positive of that. But the Bible speaks very little of that kind of thing. Um, compared with how much it says about the sheer, God-centered, spectacular, unimaginable glory that will be ours forever as we contemplate God in his infinite perfections. All the other biblical descriptions of the final state, everything that is said in other parts of the Bible about the work that we're going to do, about our increased joy, our increased responsibility, about peacefulness, everything. As wonderful as those prospects may be, they all pale in comparison of this vision of the sheer Godhood of God, which consumes us, it empowers us, and it leaves us perpetually transformed. Now, there's a lot more in these chapters we could cover, but that's, that's all we're going to have time for in this series, right? So we'll close it there. That's the end of that uh, little series. I hope that was a blessing to you. But any, any questions? Yeah. I don't know next question <laughs> you're, you're no not in the, in the physiological sense but again I think there's an accommodation of language here for us where God is saying to Moses you can't see me face to face here you're seeing him face to so face you're just seeing God in all his transcendent splendor and glory there's no mediating shield there in that sense so I don't think that means you're going to see he has the eyes and nose it's not that Whatever it means, it speaks of the deepest, deepest intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that in salvation history we've never been able to do before except for in the face of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Kevin? Um, do, um, do you think there would still be sorrow for those that were not able to them? For them? Mm-hmm. We dealt with that a little bit in previous lessons on this, and I think I think no, there won't be sorrow for that. instead you'll actually what you see happening is people rejoicing and giving praise to God for His righteousness, His justice, and uh, you're seeing God being vindicated in the damnation of, of the lost, um, which is something that right now we can't wrap our minds around as it seems heartless and cruel, but we will be, I think heaven will be, just be so transformed and changed that we will to see something of that. From God's perspective, but all the while praising Him for His unimaginable grace. That that's not us either, because um, it deserves to be us, right? But it's not going to be. Ah, oh, there's there's people in hell, and now I'm being brought low. I'm being, I'm feeling sorrow, and just you know, ah, oh, why? Because there's I think you're also reading too that there's He's saying there's continued sin, there's continued rebellion, even in this eternal state against God, It's a continual sin, and, uh, and people are reaping their just reward in that sense that's, that's a hard that's a difficult question I think if you go back to our, our lesson last week we talked about it a bit more but again be very careful of kind of trying to have that attitude now in this life it doesn't work you're, you're coming off as being cruel and having no understanding of God's grace at all if that would be the case but I think you do see people changing and actually praising God for his judgment you see that in Revelation they're praising God for his judgment yeah. okay throw the heart. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear the first part uh, there. They'll, um, they'll see God's face and his name will be on their forehead. Yeah. all, all through the book of Revelation? There's kind of this, this competing picture where you have um, the devil, the antichrist, and his people are actually, they have his name on their forehead and then there are those who are blessed of God and I think in Revelation... Three 7 as well, they have his name on their, on their forehead. So it's actually it's who yeah, so it's like, and then you serve that person. And then, and then you face the wrath of the other person. So either you have the name of the devil, Antichrist, is on your, on your forehead and you face the wrath of God, or you have God's name on your forehead and you face the wrath of Satan. And so it's, it's, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, who's, whose name do I want and whose wrath do I want to face, ultimately speaking. You almost think of it in a kind of a crazy way. It's almost like a brand. It's like here, here. It's like, uh, yeah, it's just saying my name is written on your forehead. You are mine. That's that's beautiful. With God, it's terrifying. With the other option, like, She's a brand. It's like you're mine, and you're worshiping and following me, and you're going to face the wrath now of the Lamb. You know, it's like we don't want that. Mm. Okay, well, guys, we can stop it there then. I really enjoyed that series. That's the first time I've done that, going through kind of last things eschatology. So the next two lessons are gonna be taught by Alex. It's gonna be our membership class.